If you're black in America, you have higher odds of having a food allergy and lower odds of having the support and resources you need. In Allergic Living's Talking Food Allergy podcast, we've launched a series to hear from leading advocates about the realities of managing food allergies for black families, from bias in medical care to food insecurity, school preparedness, and more. My guest today is Elisa Word. Elisa is a speaker, emotional intelligence coach, diversity strategist, and trainer. Her background in trauma, conflict resolution, and organizational behavior helps clients seeking motivation, change, and growth. Elisa is a food allergy mom and the founder of Compassion for Anaphylaxis to help families coping with the loss of a loved one. She's also founder of an initiative to increase cultural diversity in the food allergic community. Elisa Word, it is such a pleasure to have you join us today on Talking Food Allergy. I am really delighted to welcome you, and there are many topics I'd like to discuss with you today. I'd like to start with one that you have written about extensively. As a food allergy mother and as someone who suffers from food allergy yourself, you've written about the role that race, ethnicity, and gender have played in your experience with emergency care to diagnosis and treatment of food allergy, both for yourself and your child. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that experience and also what you have gleaned from your activism and advocacy in the food allergy world from other families encountering similar issues. Absolutely, Jen. We historically in the U.S. have had numerous incidents of experiments being performed on Black people and African Americans. Um, Everything from the 1950s where people were given malaria. There was a syphilis experiment. Uh, There were prisoners who had been experimented on. There there were people who had been poked with hot irons to see how thick the black skin was. So with those things in mind, unfortunately, what that has done is spiraled into distrust of people in certain roles. You ask a kid today in the black community about doctors, if they have issues with trusting doctors, why they don't, they might not even know why. It might just be something that was just passed down to them. You have to be careful. They're going to tell you this. They're going to tell you that. And I know for me, I've had an ER experience, for instance, with my daughter. When she has a reaction, we usually end up having to do the second epinephrine, which is known as the biphasic reaction. It comes back. I remember specifically seeing her face start to flush, and I knew the reaction was coming back. And me telling the provider, it's coming back. She's flushing. She's going by phasic. And first of all, being treated like I was stupid, like I didn't know what that was, asking me, well, what does that mean? And it wasn't the question. It was the tone, the inflection, and the voice in the question. So I explained to him, because I guess he thought that I had misspoke. He didn't see the redness in her face, or he refused to see it. It ended up getting to the point that I could see the panic, the impending doom in her eyes, and it was coming back full force. And I ended up taking the FP and jabbing it at my kid myself because I knew exactly what it was. The interesting thing was that there was a nurse that was in the room and it was a black male nurse. He saw it, but he couldn't override the physician at that moment. And why do I know he saw it? Because I had that conversation with him later. That's unacceptable. Had I not known, had I not been an advocate in this space and known for years what to do, I wouldn't have a daughter. As a strong advocate 
having learned much from your daughter's experience educating yourself, you found yourself in an ER where you were met with disbelief and patronizing attitudes from the physicians. So what's your experience as a thought leader and advocate when you talk to other Black families about their care experiences? Many have had either the same experience that I've had or they've had worse experiences. And it's really disturbing because a lot of people might think, oh, well, you know, are you talking about white doctors and Black patients? No, it's not just a white doctor and a Black patient. In fact, this particular doctor was Indian. The area where we were at the time, there weren't a ton of people like me that would have come into that ER with this particular condition. There are families that have had the same issue or that they were overreacting or that they were being too much. They were looking at this the wrong way. As a parent, when you are, or even for yourself, if you are facing a life-threatening situation, and especially when you know what it is, wouldn't you be upset about it? If you weren't heard, couldn't you get angry? Because anger is nothing more than a derivative of an underlying emotional state. But when I get angry about it, it's different because I become a threat. Why is that acceptable? My skin makes me a threat. It doesn't make me as much of a threat as my darker skin relative, but it still makes me a threat. And the families that I've talked to that experience things like I have, while you're literally there trying to save your kid's life, you have to also be mindful of your temperament and your behaviors. Because if you get in trouble, they call security on you. You can get arrested. Then you don't have any say about your kid. And now you're a danger to everyone. No one should ever have to be faced with that at the moment of a life-threatening situation. But that's our reality. It's not every time, but it's happened enough times that it shouldn't happen. In addition to the emergency situation, which we're discussing, there are day-to-day aspects of food allergy, medical management from diagnosis to treatment, access to clinical trials, access to allergists and specialty care. What is your experience with the role of race and inequity in a diverse population availing themselves of all of those resources? When you think about school districts and how there are all these imbalances in what some get, there are more people renting in a city, so people out in suburbs might get more because they're paying higher amounts in tax dollars. So that's how it's justified. There's a lot of that same thought process that goes into healthcare. People in the suburbs might have a better insurance or more means to pay things than somebody in the inner city, that as soon as somebody comes in, that they automatically don't have insurance that indicate in many cases how people are actually treated. If I come into you and I can't breathe, what's the cost of my breath? Is the cost of my breath the $500 or $1,000 that I can pay in a copay? Or is the cost of my breath my life? Unfortunately, for many people, that is the issue. There's an assumption that because you are a minority person, that you don't have access to funds to be able to pay for different things. Whether you have it or not, you're already deemed as being someone who doesn't. Doctors are great. I love when doctors do what doctors need to do. But what you can't do is weaponize your education and your knowledge base of a particular situation to oppress me as if I somehow have no knowledge. Have a conversation with me as opposed to speaking to me in a condescending way that begets a wall that comes up. I may already come in untrusting. Where do we go from there? We have to also get to a point that we have been provided a safe space to have those conversations and to be able to have that vulnerability with our physicians. 
there's historically a problem. Continuing to ignore the problem is being complicit. At what point do we decide that being complicit is not okay? Another area of inequity that you have been outspoken about is the price and availability of pharmaceuticals. Certainly in the food allergy world, there have been many stories over the years about shortages of epinephrine auto-injectors, recalls of different devices, and the difficulty in affordability of those devices. Can you talk a little bit about how the shortages in epinephrine and the pricing discrepancies have affected Black families managing food allergy? The pricing has been a concern. The bigger concern is making sure that they're even prescribed to us in the first place. So the bigger part is kind of getting to that. I've been able to navigate this for my children. Started out with one kid that had food allergies. And then, of course, myself, once I finally became knowledgeable. So there's epinephrine for myself, epinephrine for my daughter. And a couple of years ago, my son developed a life-threatening food allergy. There was one particular instance where we had driven to the airport, everything, we, medicine made it through. We get back home from the airport and it was winter. The meds got left in the car. And he's a, he's a teenager when he was diagnosed, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, as you know, in our community, what we do is once I've met my deductible for the year, I'm getting every refill possible for these things. 600 bucks, it's a lot of money because you need a set for your child to carry. You need a set for school. You need a set for, for extracurricular activities. It ended up that our epinephrine was in the car and we didn't know. 31st of December, well, we realized that the medicine got in, was in the car and it was frozen. $2,400 worth of medication. Guess what happened on January 1st? My deductible renewed, right? So in order for me to get these prescriptions filled, I now have to come out of pocket $2,400. I don't care what your race is, $2,400 is a lot of money for medication. Paying for this medicine is like paying your rent, paying your mortgage. You gotta have it, you gotta have a place to live and you gotta be able to be alive in that place. So it's not something that's optional. But imagine being in a position where you can't even afford to get your regular food every day. Or maybe this is the only set that you got. Or maybe you didn't have the information that it being frozen was now a problem. That's an issue for people. And especially in communities where you do see higher levels of poverty, it's just not feasible for some people. What you're saying, which is so important, is yes, we can talk about the cost and availability of epinephrine, but we first have to understand what the diagnostic experiences are for Black patients getting the prescription, having the conversation with the doctor about when and under what circumstances and how to use the medication. What I'm hearing you say is that that's not necessarily happening consistently either. Assuming that one gets to have those conversations and then goes to the pharmacy to fill the order, the impact that the cost of these medications have on a family's overall budget and the choices that families have to make when in fact they can make the choices. There are patient assistance programs that help some folks who are looking for subsidies for epinephrine, but they certainly don't meet everybody's needs. A friend of mine went to France and he found the epinephrine for $75. And he literally contacted me from France and said, if I'm able to, can I bring you some back? Because I know it costs so much in the United States. We're subsidizing other countries being able to give these things to people at an affordable rate. We're one of two or three countries in the whole world 
that still does direct-to-consumer marketing through our commercial. Yet, you have people who need medication, but they simply can't get it. If I have an allergic child or I'm an allergic person, what I need to get in my house to have the sense of normalcy in whatever a diet is, I have to spend more money to get purer ingredients. I'm already at a disadvantage financially because of that. Epinephrine should be covered at 100%, a medicine to save your life. I also feel the same thing about an albuterol inhaler. I think those two things truly need to be covered under every insurance policy, no matter what you have. Until we get to that, there will not be as much of an incentive for people to go get a medicine at $600 when their kids don't even have shoes. So let me move into the marriage between your professional expertise and your work as a food allergy advocate and thought leader. You spend a lot of time professionally helping folks think about interpersonal communication. And you've also written about loss and grief and loneliness. We know that food allergy families often describe feelings of loneliness and isolation and loss. Even if they are managing the disease day to day, there are missed opportunities and sometimes a lack of empathy from those from whom we would like it. Can you talk about loss and loneliness and isolation, not only in the food allergy world writ large, but specifically as a Black mother trying to manage her child's food allergy? Yeah, it's so close to home on that. My daughter was the kid that it was hard to get anybody to be willing to babysit for her because people were concerned about what would happen on their watch. They didn't feel equipped. I remember someone who was very, very, very close to us at the time. I remember him saying, that doesn't happens to Black people, you're making it up. We don't have that. And I remember thinking just about the ignorance and how much that hurt. So my daughter became attached at the hip. Everywhere I went, she went. She didn't really get the opportunity to have the sleepovers and the things that other kids just did kind of what we call on a regular basis. And that was really hard for her. She's a great child who has been resilient and has adapted well. And as you know, most of our kids in the food allergy community are very, very mature for their age because they've had to be. But it created a sense of loneliness, not just for her, but for me, for her. And for people not understanding that those rare kids that have an airborne fish allergy, mine happen to be one. So I couldn't go to certain things where there's an enclosed room. A lot of people in our community like to have fish fries. Like we just do, we just a thing. But I couldn't go because I couldn't take my kid. I had to choose my daughter over myself, which I would do a million times over. But it also meant that we couldn't go to certain restaurants. It also meant that there were birthday parties where people weren't sure that they could have a safe birthday party so she wasn't invited. It also meant this past Thanksgiving, friends that she thought were her friends who understood planned a Friendsgiving behind her back and told her she wasn't invited because of her food allergies. And this just happened. And what could I do to help? What conversation could I have? I can't make somebody invite my kids. But it's things like that that create that loneliness and isolation. When you compound that with the complexities of race issues that we have, every bit of this is trauma. And that's something that doctors need to recognize. When you're dealing with Black patients, when you're dealing with people, you have to deal with the trauma. So if historically I don't trust you because of what's happened to us, you got to deal with that trauma. And then that trauma begets more trauma. And that trauma begets loneliness and isolation. And no one else understands me. So I kind of go off and sit by myself. And then you think I'm antisocial. So in this community, we found a home. But our kids still do have to deal with the isolation issue. And I would argue that 
the living experience of food allergy can be inflicting trauma over and over again. Trauma from last week's allergic reaction, trauma from the Friendsgiving that you're excluded from, trauma from the big social gathering that you opt out of because you don't feel like it'll be safe for you. These are regularly inflicted traumas. Absolutely. We live in a a suburb, it's north of Atlanta. Many people that would live with life-threatening food allergy here might not look like us. So then my daughter goes to an event and she's the different kid in more ways than one. The last thing she wants to do is tell somebody she's got a food allergy because I'm already trying to fit in. We've dealt with that over the years with so many of our children in the community where they don't want people to know because they just want to be like everybody else. That is so difficult. Going back to uh, the theories of psychology with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, one of the the basic human needs is belonging. We want to feel like we belong. And we've got to create a space of belonging for everyone in every community. Every one of us has to be active in doing so. As you have been in the food allergy advocacy world for more than a decade, what's changed for the better? What hasn't changed enough or maybe changed for the worse? And what do you think is the next set of big things food allergy advocates need to be thinking about and acting on? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) I'm asking you very difficult questions. Well, there has been a lot that has changed. Food Allergy Labeling Act was just beautiful. As I mentioned previously, going into the store for the first time with this list in hand and trying to figure out what my daughter could or couldn't eat. It was just grocery shopping took a long time before. You still scan the labels because you do need to read the labels regardless, but it has become much easier when you look at ingredients. But of course now because of the COVID situation, people are kind of questioning some of the, the changes or the allowances with regards to the labels. So that's another piece that kind of now thrown at us. Availability of foods that don't taste like cardboard. Some of the things that I feel that have stayed the same, yeah, I'm going to be very, very candid with this as it relates to the inclusion component of it. A lot of people say that they want to do inclusion. They want to think about equity and belonging and those, those sorts of things. It does not mean just getting somebody that doesn't look like you involved with a project. What it means is understanding your own unconscious biases. It also is about the intersectionality of race, culture, gender. There is an intersectionality of it all. You can't have the token black person on your board. You can't have the token woman on your board. There has to be someone, first of all, who's not so far removed from what's really happening in these communities to to also really have buy-in from your boards and from your organizations. So I don't think that we're doing a good job with that. Even with this most recent climate with the George Floyd situation, people kind of really reached out and just kind of grabbed who they thought they could grab without doing the research to find out, is this a person who's going to be able to help increase our cultural competency across the board for everyone? We also could do a better job from the healthcare perspective in really having better conversations, more robust conversations with our healthcare providers, and we don't need to be on opposite sides with them. We need to sit down together and have a conversation. I need to sit next to you at a table and talk to you. I don't need to sit across from you because then we seem adversarial. Going forward, as we gain more insight into research and and look towards more treatment options, and hopefully at some point in the future, a cure, we can't lose sight 
of the the mental health components of the trauma. One of the areas that I work in is that I'm a trauma-informed emotional intelligence coach. So that's a whole other component in knowing how to have conversations with people. From a healthcare perspective, our doctors need to get on the same page with each other, but they can't do that if the powers that be over top of them aren't on the same page with each other. Many of them are doing the best that they can with what they have, but there need to be more opportunities afforded to them to have better conversations, have better resources to be able to provide better care. We've got to legislate for epinephrine and these inhalers to be paid for at 100%, get rid of the incentives. That way we can get them into all of the communities where they belong and we can spend more time on the educational component. To put it other way, what you said earlier about boards, having one African-American on a board and expecting that one person to encompass the totality of African-American experiences is ludicrous on its face. And an organization would never assume that a white board member would be able to represent the diverse array of white experience. Being a Black person is not monolithic. I literally just said that. Yeah, our listeners can't see us, but you just referred to yourself as a light-skinned Black woman. I am a white woman. We've had some honest and good discussions about allyship. And I'd like to end this conversation by asking you, something a little bit more personal. As a person who is not a Black person, but who chooses very much to want to be an ally and to help improve the life experience of my neighbors and friends and colleagues who are Black and the Black community overall, how do I begin that process? Or if I'm along that journey, what would you want to see people like me be doing? It starts with you first before you can help anybody else honestly. And people have to really take a real world look at themselves. And that can be difficult because each and every one of us have in some way, shape, or form in our lives exhibited some sort of biases towards other people, whether it be race, gender, socioeconomic, about behavioral health, whatever it is. And you have to be truthful with yourself. That doesn't mean go shout to the world, hey, I said a bad thing one time. That doesn't mean that. What that means is sitting down and taking inventory of you, what you believe, what you know, also what you don't know, what you're curious about, and what you know to be right and or wrong. That's all about being self-aware. You must understand yourself, your own cultural dynamic, your history, what you've been taught, what you know, what you've been socialized to believe, even in media. You know, I talked to somebody who was from Africa and he said that over there, this picture that they get of certain groups in America is, is not good. So that's what they've been socialized to believe is true. So you got to start with you. And what that means is having real conversations with real people who, are, who provide, one, a safe space for you to have genuine dialogue with one another. Two, somebody in many cases who is professional enough to be able to have those conversations with you and help you to reframe some of your own thinking, but also is willing to perhaps even reframe theirs based on the conversation with you. And then think about your family and your community that you're in. When your kids, if you have get-togethers, the people that come to your get-togethers, do they all look like you? Because even if you're not teaching your kids to be racist or to be biased in any way against other groups, if that's unfamiliar to them, when they go out into the rest of the world, it'll continue to be unfamiliar to them. I'm used to being the only black person in the room. Are you used to being the only white person in the room? And if you aren't, and it happens to you, 
Are you uncomfortable? And ask yourself why you're uncomfortable. Why does that make you feel some kind of way? And how can you work to change that? That could be anything from joining groups that you're no longer, that you're not, not used to being affiliated with, to partnering with professionals who can really have some good conversation with you and help you to kind of work your way through it. And there's no shame in that. To volunteering more in organizations where you see groups of people who live drastically different than you. In order to be able to, to be the change, you have to change. But you can't do that if you constantly say, well, I don't see color, which is insulting, by the way, for people who don't realize that. When you say you don't see color, what you've now done is made, you basically whitewashed me as a person. If you say I don't see gender, you now have whitewashed me as a woman or a man or a non-binary person. And I think that what we need to understand about diversity, inclusion, belonging, and, and equity is it's, it's all this big salad. And you put all the fruits in there and it's the melding together of the fruits that makes the salad amazing. But individually by ourselves, it's pretty boring. So we, you have to do better with you before you can do better with anyone else. And don't speak for people. People often want to speak for communities because they think, well, if they're marginalized, if they're oppressed, oh, they don't have a voice, poor them. Please don't bring the savior syndrome. What that does is create an even bigger barrier. For healthcare professionals, if your employer or your business, you don't have a real cultural sensitivity program in place, and I'm talking real, not just this check a box type stuff, then go out and hire somebody to do that. Somebody who's gonna be real with you. And it's gonna be uncomfortable. But the only way you get from that comfort zone to the growth zone is to go through the stretch zone. That's an incredibly honest and helpful answer. And I appreciate that I can go there with you in this conversation today. Melissa Word, I cannot thank you enough. Your leadership on so many important issues for the African-American community, particularly as we talked about today, those living with food allergy and those who care for and provide services to the food allergy community. We have so much to learn from your lived experience and from the experiences that you are sharing with us today and your observations. And I'm just grateful to you for taking the time and for sharing so much with us today on our podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been the Talking Food Allergy Podcast from Allergic Living. My guest today was Elisa Word, founder of Compassion for Anaphylaxis and the Food Allergic Multicultural Society of Diversity. To learn more, visit CompassionForAnaphylaxis.com. Be sure to visit AllergicLiving.com and the new This Allergic Life microsite. Join me soon for the next in our series when I speak to Thomas and Dina Silvera, of the Elijah Alavi Foundation for our series on racial disparities in food allergy. I'm your host, Jen Jobrak, National Food Allergy Consultant with Food Allergy Pros. Thank you for listening.